Hi, my name's Rob Hardy, BSC. I'm the cinematographer of Devs, Mission Impossible Fallout, and Ex Machina. And you're listening to the Go Creative Show. everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. This is the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Our guest today is Rob Hardy, BSC. It's his return to the Go Creative Show uh, because he came on the show a few years back talking about his work as director of photography for Ex Machina, which was such a great movie. If you guys haven't seen it, you must. Uh, But since then, he's done a lot. Uh, He was the director of photography for Annihilation, Mission Impossible, Fallout, and the brand new Hulu series, Devs, which we talk a lot about. Now, this episode is jam-packed. Rob is so good on the air. He's great with conversation, and he really can dive in deep to the -the behind-the-scenes secrets, particularly in Mission Impossible, Fallout, where we talk quite a bit about how he achieved some of those absolutely stunning, amazing shots. Now, that's all coming up in just a couple of minutes, but before we get there, a couple of things. Uh, just today, and I'm so excited about this, just today, um, me and my producer Connor have figured out a way to have complete remote production with DSLRs. Um, I've been talking about OpenReel that I use for iPhones, and I absolutely love OpenReel. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to be talking more about it in upcoming shows. But if you guys are looking for a remote production workflow with iPhones, OpenReel is what you should be looking at. You can get 10% off by um, just mentioning the name of the show, mentioning my name, Ben Consoli. They'll give you 10% off, and it's a, it's a great software package. But we've also figured out a way to do complete remote production with DSLRs. And I am so excited to share this workflow with you guys, and it will happen. I'm going to be doing it. It's just been super busy, so I just need time to pull it together. But this could absolutely revolutionize Uh, the way that you do work um, during COVID-19, certainly, and maybe even beyond. Full, complete, remote production, contactless production with DSLRs. And uh, I'm so excited to share it. And it's not expensive, and anybody can do it. And it's going to be really fun to see what you guys do with this um, little uh, cocktail of programs and technology. It's I can't wait to share it. And it's coming up. But until then, and even after then, OpenReel is where to go for your iPhone solution, which is fantastic. OpenReel.com. Give them my name. Get 10% off. All right. Our sponsors for today, MZ Education for Creatives and PostLab, stress-free collaboration for Final Cut Pro 10 and Premiere. And we'll talk about them later in the show. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. I want to thank you guys for your guest, uh, for your um, questions, your audience questions. We ask a lot of them in this episode, and they actually prompt some really great conversations. So thank you for that. All right, let's dive in with Rob Hardy, BSC, the director of photography for Hulu's Devs. Okay, so I'm here with Rob Hardy, BSC, the director of photography for Devs on Hulu, and so excited to have you back, Rob. It's been a while, but welcome back to Go Creative Show. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, what has it been like, my God, five years or something? Years, yes. You, you, were, you were on for Ex Machina, and a lot has changed yes. in the world, in your life. I mean, what, what, 
What is the state of Rob Hardy's life since Ex Machina? Where, what did you move on to? Because my God, Mission Impossible, Annihilation, now devs and yeah. more. Um, talk to us a little bit about just kind of the impact of Ex Machina on your life and how things changed since then. I think, you know, with the reaction to Ex Machina after, you know, after even, what is it, five years now, it yeah. still feels, uh, you know, in a sense, we were, I guess what we were trying to do was make something that would stand the test of time. So, um, not, not self-consciously or consciously. Um, it just, it, it's just sort of turned out that way. And, uh, you know, I look back, you know, I look back on it and I'm extremely proud of that work. And it feels like it was the first, in terms of what Alex and I have been doing since, it was a great way to start for us, you know. Um, and since then, we've just been trying to expand upon all of the ideas and the style in which we made that film and also just develop as collaborators together, which which has been really important for us as, you know, from a working relationship. So um, we've made, what, two movies, well, a, another movie and a, and a miniseries since then. And um, yeah. I think it feels like there's a, a real expansion of our ideas and our approach since Ex Machina. So a lot has changed in that respect. How do you think you've honed your skills since? Because you've worked with Alex, the same director, on a couple of projects since. And, mm. you know, it can only get better and, and has been getting better. But what are some of the ways that you've identified that you've honed your skills in cinematography through this experience with Alex and starting with Ex Machina? That's a good question, but it, it's also a tricky question to answer because I think as you, you know, in, in any field, as you progress, you, you, you're learning constantly, right? So if every experience is a new experience, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so you can take what you've learned from, from previous ex experiences, but also every project is different. So it requires a different approach, if you like. Um, I mean, one of the key things that specifically with the relationship that I have, working relationship I have with Alex is that uh, and this really started with Ex Machina anyway, is that we don't tend to, we don't tend to reference other, other movies or, or even photographers for that matter, mm. when we're discussing a project and when we're, when we're prepping it in the very, very early stages, partly because um, it's all there in the, it's all really there in the, on the pages. And by that, I don't mean, you know, the, the way it looks is spelled out because that isn't the case at all. It's just more a case of this idea that we like to um, allow the project to breathe and create its own voice. So with that in mind, when we, when we start any production, we just talk about, it's, it's just a very simple approach in the sense of, I know this might sound obvious, but it's literally like how, how can we translate this in the best way possible uh, by doing the things that we do? And we have a sort of uh, an unspoken shared aesthetic, I guess. Hmm. Um, so it makes that our job easier. So really what it's about is, and this is something in answer to your question, a long, a long way around to answer your question, it's 
this idea of creating a world, right? So with Ex Machina, we, it was my first real experience. I mean, I'd been working up towards that moment anyway, but where we could physically create a 360-degree environment in which to tell our story. So we used that. We've sort of progressed with that idea, and it went through the, you know, went through annihilation into devs as well. So, so essentially, our prep and our discussions are always about um, the world which we're creating, not necessarily about how we're going to photograph it. It's just simply what are the, you know, what is the physicality of this world? Um, and then from my point of view, it's very much about creating a floor, a playground, if you like, with in which um, Alex and the actors can move freely. And mm. then I can shoot in any direction I want, if, if that makes sense. So with the case of devs, for example, especially when it came to the devs cube set, we had the same principles that we'd learnt on Ex Machina, but, but then, you know, times 10. Uh, and a lot of things that we, a lot of mistakes that we felt we'd made with Ex Machina, just when I say mistakes, I don't mean narrative mistakes, I mean like just physical shooting things that, that we were, okay, we understand, because again, there's a similarity, there's lots of glass, there's it's it's a it's a contained set, um, so we, you know, our methods were slightly more honed when we when we came to shooting devs, but there was it was a similar sort of approach. So you must be pretty deeply involved in the production design as well if you're making these kinds of decisions. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, not in terms of like you know, I'm not there telling telling Marco and Mish how it should look. It's more a case of our conversations in prep start early and, and Alex's great skill is to bring every everybody all of the HODs together in a room and start those conversations so there's there's a great deal of transparency involved in the process and early on in, in you know and so there's there's a, there's also any decisions that I will make as far as the photography is concerned I'll I'll talk to Andrew Whitehurst the VFX supervisor I'll talk to Marco or Mish, the production designers, and we'll run these ideas by each other. And it's a constant dialogue so that nothing, no stone is unturned and then nothing is happening that hasn't already been communicated, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so there's a great deal of trust involved and it's a real team effort. Um, so in that sense, yes, you know, we all have our... Um, you know, we're all bringing to the table our own skills, but it's all it's all coming together as one. So, for example, where the lighting and production design is involved uh, is concerned, I feel that they are very much interwoven. So, off you know, often I would say to Mark and Mitch that we want the set to feel like it could light itself in a way, but then we have control over that. So, very much, you know. It, a lot of the lights are integral to the set. And again, in the case of something like the Debs Cube set, which we were shooting on for six weeks, not a single light was brought onto the set in that period of time. It was the set and the exterior walls of the set and the way in which we'd placed the exterior lighting and were controlling that lighting 
created the environment that we wanted. And we could change that in a matter of seconds as well. You had no lights within this cube set. Everything was from outside of it? Correct. Wow. I had, I had no physical film lights on set. So, so, the, 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 so what I'm saying is after, after the prep that we'd, that we'd done, we, what we wanted to do was create a living, breathing thing, right? So we wanted to create a set that could effectively light itself. And in that, I mean, you don't just switch it on and off, or it's on or it's off. It's, there are many different variations of that. So I would spend a good few weeks with my gaffer and the designers, and we would discuss how we would place lights into the set, and then also how many different variations we had within that context. So let me give you an example. The exterior gold wall of, of the dev sets, you have the cube set itself, and outside of that on the studio walls, these four-by-four four gold leaf um, textured tiles, if you like, giant tiles. Our initial idea was to light the entire set reflected off of those tiles so that you would have a great deal of contrast, but there would be this sort of beautiful soft light. So again, it allowed us to look in any direction. We also wanted those tiles or that wall, the exterior wall, to feel like it was breathing in some way or there was some sort of uh, movement to it. And when I started working with Lee Walters, the gaffer, on how we would create those movies and what was the best movement, you know, we were looking for this one specific kind of movement across these tiles using our, all of our exterior tungsten lighting. And we discovered that there were just hundreds and hundreds of variations that we liked. So we just created a library uh, of different textures, different kinds of movements that would change and shift the lighting states within, within the cube itself without ever bringing the light onto the set. So when Alex arrived and we ran those through with him, we were just like, okay, well, look, we're here for six weeks, so we're going to use these for as many as we can uh, on a daily basis, depending on what, what any given scene is, is saying within the context of the narrative. That makes sense. Yeah, and it, there does have, that set does have this, breathing kind of element. The lights are kind of pulsing throughout all the time. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, that's got to be an editing nightmare because when you're going back and forth between people in close-ups, there must've been situations constantly where it's like, oh wait, the light wouldn't be pulsing. It wouldn't be at its peak at this point. It would be lower. And just the challenge that must've been created by doing that. Um, was that any, did you guys have to think about that when you were doing your cross shots? Yeah. When we first started we first came when we first fell in love with the idea, the concept. Once we were already on set, we were like, you know, we might we might end up screwing ourselves here a bit because <laughs> how are we going to do this? And it was exactly that. So what we did is we just simply progressed, right? We just went forward, started doing it, and Jake, the editor, was was cutting, you know, assembling stuff as it was coming in, and he quickly discovered that the the biggest difference is, or the, the hardest thing to do would be cutting together levels, right? So mm -hmm. if the levels were very different, then it would become very, very, very difficult. But we were never doing that because we would create a look for any given scene. So that that sense or that kind of, uh, the atmosphere would always remain the same inside the scene itself. But then cross-shooting 
um, you know, that was just something that it sort of fell into place. I mean, you know, we, the way we cover scenes uh, in that context, and often Alex's scenes are like eight or nine pages long, is that we would do uh, continuous takes. We would never really break the scene down unless it unless it involved some physical movement from the actors that was almost impossible to to cover in a single take. So we would always master as a single take, and then each close up would be a continuous take. So effectively, what you did have was a pattern that would that would lock into itself. So so the 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 master always locked into those close ups because we were never only shooting it in part. We were always shooting it in, in its entirety for every single setup. Did you sneak in lights into that cube set for close-ups at all? Or did you stay true to this idea that everything was outside the walls? Okay, Ben, I'm going to say it again. We didn't bring any lights I just up. don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I can say this. Some lights arrived on the set uh, when FX brought in their marketing team to shoot uh, some stills and some video stuff for, uh, you know, for their marketing campaign. Uh, and it was a, it was like an entirely different crew that came onto our set. And I said to the director slash DP who was doing it, I was like, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. And uh, he, he didn't believe me either <laughs> uh, and brought some lights onto set. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's fine do whatever you guys do because we we were going home for the weekend anyway so we just left them to it but um that was the only time that lights came onto set wow they weren't mine <laughs> <laughs> i love that and i and i i think what's really cool about it is that you're doing it and it, first of all it looks great but you're also doing it in an effort to give the talent an opportunity to experience the space as they would if they were really living this moment out exactly and that you know that that initial idea started with Ex Machina, the seed of that idea started there. And prior to Ex Machina, I was doing, you know, I've always worked on this principle that I like to like, you know, I like to light environments as 360 degrees as possible, even if it's just like a room, you know, with windows, you know, I'm going to light through those windows in its, in its simplest, in the simplest terms. But it by, you know, if you place those lights carefully, you can, um, you can allow yourself to be the freedom to shoot in the way that you would like to and give the actors the freedom to move in the way that they would like to. Uh, and of course, the director to work and block a scene as freely as possible. You know, often it'd be like, can they stand over here? Can they stand there? It's like, yeah, of course they can, you know. Um, and, and we'll position the camera in a way that complements that, that blocking. So, um, you know, Devs was no exception. In a way, Devs was sort of, um, you know, the uh, the progression, the real advanced progression of that. We got a question from the audience about um, your projects with Alex Garland from Mohit on Instagram. And this is probably going to be hard to even answer, but it says, what's your favorite Alex Garner uh, Garland project that you've worked on? Um, you know, give it a shot. I'm sure they're all a little bit different. I'm sure you all you love them all equally like your own kids, but is there something that I guess stands out and maybe a reason why, if possible? Um, I would, I would answer the question in this way is that, um, after Ex Machina, 
it was my favorite Alex Garland project. Then we shot Annihilation. It became my favorite Alex Garland project. <laughs> nice. Now yes, it's my favorite Alex Garland project. So that that's kind of how it is, you know. And I think really it's it's a body of work that that, as I said earlier, is it's a progression. So each one is its own, has its own particulars, you know. Um so, so that's the best way I can answer that question. Earlier, you mentioned that you you and Alex both don't usually reference a lot of films when planning your projects. So I, I guess what what are you using as visual references or is it truly just being made up as you go? It, I mean, effectively, it's being made up as we go. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so as I said, you know, it's really what we want to do is uh, we work off the page, obviously, and those scripts are always incredible, which is a testament to his talent as a writer. But they're never um, over-explanatory. They're always very, very economical and simple. And we that's our basis, as it should be, I think, in filmmaking. So um, we don't want to pollute that. We want it to be as pure as possible. And we literally do start from scratch, and it's it's always it's always the big question, you know. It's like, okay, so what does the devs cube look like? What you know, what what do you know? What does the bear in 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 um, how does that see the bear sequence in Annihilation? How does it look, you know? And it's it's just like we we approach it as as filmmakers, and we want to be excited by what we're doing right so um and we want it to feel like it's the first time we've ever done anything like that so therefore it just sort of happens as we progress and and it happens through conversation um and also like i say it helps that we have a sort of shared aesthetic so there's no need for me or alex to show each other an image to say i want it to look like that because we sort of know how we want to, it to look. Uh, it's just a question of getting there. Mm. Um, and, and, and again, I'll just come back to what I was saying. Like, really, it's about, it's about creating the world. And as soon as we've created the world, everything else falls into place. So if I walk onto the Devs Cube set, um, as I did in those first, you know, in those first few days, it would just present so many beautiful options as far as um, visual storytelling is concerned. Yeah. So anywhere I looked, I would see something and I would get very excited at first. And I would say to Alex, I'm like, God, we've got to do this. We have to do this. Look, at, look over here, look at this. And he'd be like, I know it's, it's, it's insane, uh, but we need to like, you know, we can't just, we can't just like, um, do it all in the first week, then uh, where are we left? You know, but actually, in the end, after six weeks, we were still, there were still new things presenting themselves constantly, um, which was a delight. You know, we never felt like we were repeating ourselves um, or searching for something that we didn't feel like we hadn't already done. Um, so, yeah, it works like that. Um, I think, I think also, you know, any, any, filmmaker will tell you this is that subconsciously you know in filmmaking you're, you obviously love movies right so and visual um 
referencing or, or not referencing, but but you know you're attracted to imagery in yeah. of any kind, whether it's sculpture, painting, or whatever it is. Um, so subconsciously, there's always going to be you're going to your brain, your mind's going to take take in those things. Um, so I'm sure you know, like for example, in the case of annihilation, subconsciously we knew, you know, being you know, we, we both we both seen Tarkov, Tarkovsky's Stalker. We've both seen that movie. We never talked about it, but subconsciously we sensed sometimes when we were out there on location, God, this does feel a bit like that. This story does feel a bit like that, you know? Um, but it wasn't like we want to do a shot like he did it. It's that seems sort of counterproductive to us. The references you know? are, are they're in here somewhere. And you're, you're pulling from things without even making note of it. I think that's, it's an interesting approach. And honestly, I haven't, I don't think there's ever been anybody else that's come on the show that hasn't said specifically, like we had a lookbook or we were referencing these films or this particular artist or something. And I like where you're coming from with that. That's, that's really unique. Uh, okay. So we talked about the way that you're lighting the cube set. Talk to me about the way that you're lighting everything else. Is there a constant lighting philosophy throughout devs for the scenes outside of the cube? Yeah, so it's really the same principle. So if you imagine, irrespective of whether we were on another set, uh, so we built sets for Lily's apartment, we built sets for Jamie's apartment. Um, I'm just trying to think what else we built sets for. We built sets within locations. Um, so a lot of the, like a lot of the exterior stuff of um, Amaya, the Amaya campus, if you like, um, was a combination of um location elements that we shot in santa cruz uh and then some other stuff that we shot in in locations in london um but the principle was always the same and when i say that i mean in terms of uh well certainly in terms of lighting is that i would you know on location santa cruz for example i don't know if you've ever been up to that i haven't no Incredible, absolutely incredible. And it's like this beautiful combination of kind of brutalist concrete architecture and these sequoias. And, and they they kind of align with each other. And there's this kind of friction also. So there's this constant play between nature and this kind of like the, the hardest kind of architecture you could imagine. But but within that, um, there's a there's a sort of harmony between the two. So again, it's a case of things that, that just present themselves, right? So um, that that was a was a pleasure to work through. Um, and again, the interiors in that location that we would we would shoot would be, um, you know, as three hundred and sixty degrees possible. But then our restrictions came really with um, how much we could dress, how far we could go with it, you know. Um, mm. And also, it was it was a working campus at the time, so there were students there. Wow! Even though it was it was like August, September, so it was, it was kind of quiet. Well, certainly throughout August. So you know, we, we had the run of the place, but but there were still students. Um, so we had to work, kind of work around that. But but again, the principles always always remain the same for me, which is um, this is our you know this is our playground. This is our this is our world. And we should treat it as such. Um, and as far as lighting style is concerned, 
I need everything to connect, right? So you're talking about a hundred day shoot um, across, you know, across two continents um, with different, like for example, California, you know, mid late summer California, Northern California light. How's that going to match to uh, dreary October yeah. London experience? <laughs> you know, yeah. so we had to work around those things, and we had to really think about matching those, matching that stuff in. Um, and I would use, as I always tend to do anyway, as my major, my big sources would be tung- big tungsten sources, and both while I was in California and also shooting in London and then consequently Manchester. Um, so those things helped align a lot of stuff, you know, um, <clears throat> which is great because you can, you can, you know, I like the way this tungsten light mixes with natural daylight as it is. I was never trying to cut what was actually happening around us. I was just trying to augment it. Um, and by doing it both in California and, and in London, it sort of seemed to work, you know, and especially with, with mood shifts within the, within the story itself. The first scene where we are introduced to Nick Offerman's character, Forrest, uh, they're, they're all kind of sitting in, you know, they're across a table from each other. There's a computer screen there and it's within the first couple of minutes of the first episode and right away. You're like, okay, we are embracing dark cinematography here because we're only lit from one side. Like we are completely in shadow on the camera facing side. And I mean, I love that stuff anyway, but it really sets the tone for where this is going to go. And I thought it was interesting because you see that scene before you see the cube scene, which is kind of lit all over the place and very unique and, and different and purposeful. And then you have that scene that's very like the sun is somewhere out there. We're not going to worry about it. That's our only light source. I thought combining the two, and maybe I'm looking a little bit too deeply into it, which happens sometimes, but I, I felt like combining the two was combining reality and science fiction. Uh, and I think you guys do it beautifully all throughout the series. You did it in Ex Machina, but there's something about the way that you treat the lighting where you're mixing natural and this uh, science fiction-y, purposeful, you know, I'm actually surprised you said it was tungsten, but you're always making those combinations, like the brutalism architecture in the woods, another yeah. one of those combinations. I felt like that theme was really following through the entire storyline as well as the lighting. And curious if, A, I'm looking way too much into it, or if I'm actually onto something, and B, what was the intention there? <laughs> you are onto you're, you're very astute for picking that up. Then. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Wild. You hear that, people? I'm very astute. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, 100%. It's, it's you know, and, and that's what I was saying. It's, it's like, it's so important, especially when you're looking at, you know, think about it in terms of it's, it's you know, it's such, a, it's such an expansive story. And suddenly, I mean, effectively, we're shooting an, like a six and a half hour movie, right? It's not, you know... It, 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 everything has to connect and we're doing it across a hundred days. And, and it's my job to find those visual threads and those visual connections from scene to scene to scene. And irrespective of whether, whether we're exterior on a San Francisco street or whether, you know, we're like you say, we're in the sort of high tech company office and it's like the sun is over there. 
And um, but it also has to serve the story as well. So in the case of that scene that you're talking about, um, I think it's where they were looking at the the, the kind of worm. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and Forrest is eating this the salad out. So yeah, I, yeah, yes. So, <laughs> Which know, was a it, very odd choice, but I loved it. <laughs> it was a good choice. That I mean, that in itself, you know, the way I looked at it was like, look, they're in a room, they're making a presentation. In addition to the connection that I'm trying to make narratively and visually across the, you know, in the, the global perspective, if you like, the specifics of that scene uh, require um, a screen, something that's happening on a screen to be the center of that, you know, the, the heart of that scene. Mm. Actually, the heart of the scene really is about, you know, Sergei's realization that he's going to go into death. But, but, but we show that he's, an incredibly intelligent, skilled, you know, technician and artist. And it's, it's, it's being um, honored, if you like, by the head of the company, you know. And so um, the emphasis of that moment is on that screen and what's happening on that screen. Mm. And, and the, the looks between, you know, the, the members of that, the people in that room. And so what's quite, what was, for me was seemed to be fairly obvious was like you know i have to bring i have i have to create you know, I have to sculpt it in a way that that it becomes about the screen but it, we never lose that relationship between across the table right? and there's an odd kind of atmosphere to the room because there's an odd atmosphere to that scene um so all of those things combined ended up creating what we created you know i didn't i didn't really uh when we scout, you know, we scouted it, uh, but I didn't, you know, I didn't sort of sit and kind of story storyboard and shot list it and do a kind of lighting with plan or anything. It was more like, okay, this is, I know this is how it needs to look in a narrative context uh, because of everything else that's gone before and everything else that will come after. Um, and I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope it works. let's take a quick break and talk about MZ. Now, MZ is education for creatives. And this there's really never been a better time to spruce up your, you know, skill set. Then right now we have more time on our hands. Production hasn't really started all over the world yet. And now is the time, right? MZ gives you exactly what you want. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of high quality video-based filmmaking education covering things like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. Of course, as we all know, anybody that's gone to school knows this, it's not just the information you're getting, but it's the presentation too. The teachers are just as important as the information they teach. And with MZ, you have amazing teachers, just to name a few. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom. The Ari Academy is on there. And there are courses after courses after courses of stuff that you guys are just going to love. Recently, they did a course on Da Vinci Resolve, and um, Shane Herbert actually did a course called Deadfall Script to Screen. Now, Deadfall is a film that he shot, and he basically goes through different scenes of the film and teaches you how to do it on an indie budget, right? Now, that sounds fascinating. MZ is really where you want to go for this education. High quality, looks great, amazing educators, and it's all there. And if you become an MZ Pro member, you get access to their courses just 
available. They're all just available to you. It's like Netflix. It's like Spotify. I mean, you pay a subscription and you get access to the catalog. So it is really the way to go. And I encourage you to check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Let's talk about your camera choice for devs. Um, what were you shooting on? I was using a Sony Venice. Ah. Yeah. Um, so. How did you come I, to that decision? And did you test anything else? Yeah, I mean, always, always test it, always test. Every, every time I start a new project, I'll test. I'm not, you know, I don't have a particular allegiance to any any particular camera, although it might look like it if you, if you sort of look at retrospectively of what what i've done but um i just think it's important to start with an, a clean slate you know on yeah. every production so so we you know we would test everything um the american camera the german camera and the japanese camera you know so we would um, and anything else that came in into it as well you know, i even shot a little bit of film too but that was just for my own kind of you know indulgence um and it, it, it and then, and again it's a very democratic process so we we you know, we test it and then i'm always looking at the big thing i want to know is is um is that lens the light lens ca- uh, sensor combination right so in the case of shoot, working with alex we tend to shoot digitally we've always done it so that's just the way it is um so i'm looking for that perfect combination and um yeah, I mean, in the case of devs, I you know I'd used on X on X Mac, and I I used the Sony F sixty five, and I really liked the look of that sensor. There's something kind of and the combination between that and the Crystal Express lenses that I ended up using for that show. Um, on Annihilation, you know, we moved from uh, using Sony F sixty fives into using Reds and a little bit of DXL as well, the Panavision cameras, because the narrative sort of dictated that and also we did lots of lens shifts as well so i changed my camera package as the as the movie progressed we shot it as linear as we possibly could anyway and that seemed to work really well for that for that film uh, and then in the case of devs you know uh, so uh, sony had released this new venice camera which i I'd, I'd been um looking at they brought it down to the set of mission impossible even though we were shooting mission impossible on film I'd asked Sony to bring it down because I was keen to just have a look at it. We had it out on the camera truck and and it was in its very early stages at that point. And I was just always in the back of my mind, I was thinking, this 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 could be good for devs. Obviously, I was going to test everything else. But what's what was nice about that camera is that it served two purposes. And one in the sense that it supplied the right sensor look that I historically enjoy. Um, it responds to the glass. That's quite a sharp sensor, but then it means that it reads the glass in a way that I, I really like, mm. uh, meaning that it s- sees every single aberration. And you're, um, and to me, my lens choice is, it's like you're choosing your paints or whatever. It's the most, it's one of the most important choices you know, you're, you're going to make, as you know. Um, and of course, we, you know, I'll get down to my four final options and show it to Alex. And then we would just simply go, we like that, or that's the movie. Suddenly the movie presents itself in the test room. It's essentially what you're aiming for. Um, so you liked the, the super crisp 
uh, sensor and its ability to pick up everything on the lenses. And I think that makes sense. Yeah. What were the qualities of the lenses you were looking for? And what did you ultimately choose? Well, we ended up going with the C-series anamorphics, um, which have a very smoky, layered, dense quality to them, a very classic kind of elegant look. Um, and that sensor reads that beautifully, right? So um, it's, there's, no, there's nothing in between the glass and, and, and the way it's read. Um, and then the combination of those lenses and the light, the kind of soft tungsten light that I'm using, um, and the way those lenses react to it creates a perfect combination for me. Um, what we also did was we expanded the C-series lenses so that they would wrap around the sensor and we would push our aberrations out to the very, very peripheries of the frame, mm. which then kind of emphasized the drop-off that much more. Um, but also, you know, on those lenses, sometimes you can have that that aberration that runs across the bottom of the of the screen around the top, and it it can look um, it, it it can look a little like a mistake sometimes, a focus issue, right? And we didn't want any of that. But uh, what we wanted was the best out of the lenses in that context. And the other reason we expanded them is because we were shooting on a two to one ratio, um, as opposed to a sixteen nine or a two three five. We went, we we found that sort of sweet spot. What we felt was the sweet spot. The other thing the camera, the camera, what I was going to say was, um, is, is it was interesting to me is that it has this kind of Rialto. So you can lift off the sensor, essentially, and it's an umbilical to the camera body. So what you have is a, very, a much more kind of condensed, smaller footprint. And I was using that um, for very long takes inside the devs cube uh, in combination with a stabilizer, which is a very tiny little flight head. Um, so then I could be off, I could be outside of the room on comms to my uh, dolly grip, Sam, and move through an eight or nine minute take, uh, largely improvising the first master without any problems uh, with, with reflections or, you know, essentially we're just keeping the footprint down. Um, and then I would have, I would be on the wheels, I would have that, and I would have B camera, so I could look at the two and B camera on comms. So it's, it's like you, you're sort of controlling the whole thing as it's as it's happening, um, but very quietly, obviously, and whispering. Um, and that, that so, so the camera presented that option to me, which I felt was really good too. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that Rialto mode. I mean, I've never used it. I'm, we've had a couple of people that have worked with the Venices talk about it in the past, but it, it sounds it sounds great for applications like that one. It just needs to be smaller. You need to be able to be in a tight space. Yeah, and I also, you know what? Moving forward, especially with the climate we're in now, uh, you know, moving forward to try and start making movies again, um, it, we've got to look at things like that, you know, those kinds of solutions as well. Um, where we need to protect actors and uh, without without losing that relationship, you know, yeah. uh, between between the camera and the actor. And I think um, I think it was a, it was a neat it was a neat way of doing stuff. We we used it quite a lot actually in the end that system that combination. But just to take a little bit of a, a, a deviation on the conversation because I did want to talk about 
you know, where you think filmmaking is going, uh, you know, during COVID and beyond. Um, and we will certainly get back to the lenses. There's a couple of questions here from listeners, but I just want to take a quick second here since we're talking about it. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Like, where do you think filmmaking and production is going um, when we do come back? Well, you know, I think filmmakers and filmmaking, it's, it's, it's all problem solving, isn't it, ultimately? And um, looking for solutions, the perfect solution that's, that, that, that works for, you know, the, 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 econ the economics of it and the creative elements of it and, you know, telling the story. So um, I, think we're, I think we're in a good place because we, we will figure it out essentially um and we'll find a way forward um you know and there have been a lot of ideas flow through the dga white paper and things like that is that you know how do we do this safely ultimately um uh, without compromising um our story or rather uh you know adding to it even so so in some senses it's like i'm i'm kind of at the moment i i was in prep um, we were two weeks out from shooting uh, a movie here in Atlanta, because I'm in Atlanta right now. Um, and now that movie, the way we're going to shoot that movie, because it's going to come back and we're going to start prep again soon, uh, is a is a completely different beast to what it wow. you know, what it was originally. Uh, but now it's it's you know the the challenges that that presents to me is exciting because it's like okay, well. How can we use this to our advantage? How can we, you know, as storytellers, how can we combine the, you know, the, the, the idea of doing it in the way that we have to do it? Can, uh, can you explain to us at all how you're doing it and what, what the reasons were? Well, I mean, if you look at the DGA paper, what they talk about is zoning, right? So you, you effectively have to zone the whole production. Um, which means that, uh, you know, your zone A, if you like, is shooting crew. And then within that, that you have to, you have to walk, be able to walk onto the set, practically not be able to leave that set unless you have to go into another set. And the whole thing is like created in, in a way that you, it's, it's like, uh, you never leave those from zone B, which is production. Okay. And then, then zone C is, is effectively the outside world. I understand. Um, I, I thought you were talking about the way, like a camera choice or a, a you know, some lighting yeah, decisions I mean, that, or things that had. 100%, 100%. That also then applies to that. So, yeah. you know, if, if I'm in a room and uh, normally if we're shooting a scene and then, you know, you turn around and shit has to move and some tweaks have to happen, whether it's the camera, a lens needs to come in or um you know grips need to come in uh, lights need to come in those those things uh have to be looked at differently but very very differently yeah and you have to plan a lot more in advance and strangely enough from what we were talking about earlier you know my method of lighting spaces as 360 degrees possible is an advantage this is your time <laughs> You're like, I have a solution. We're not going to light anything. <laughs> How about that? It's done. <laughs> I like the way you think. You're you're tailor made for this. In our last few minutes, I want to get to just some questions that we've had um, across our social media. Um, yeah. 
We've got a question here from Liam Kerrigan from on YouTube. He wants to know, where does your love for anamorphic come from? Uh, you know what? I can answer that question quite specifically, strangely. And this does involve a film reference. Uh, and when I was a kid, um, uh, growing up, uh, when I started to first watch movies, I, um, I came across John Carpenter and a bunch of movies that he made in that period. There was about four or five movies uh, from Halloween, I would say, over to probably uh, Escape from New York, maybe that far, uh, which included The Thing, one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, and I will argue anyone. <laughs> I will argue with anyone about that. <laughs> Uh, but one thing I really noticed when I was watching those movies as a, as a kid um, was how they looked. And, and I was aware, very, I became very aware of whenever one of those films came on TV or, or if I had a VHS, and I, it, it, was, it had a different look to other films. And I didn't know why, right? I, I had no idea. Mm. I just knew that I was watching... Um, a John Carpenter movie. And then, of, of course, I was like, okay, so I need to find out more about how, how they did this. And I found out about the cinematographer, Dean Cundy. And those two combined made a series of movies that had a very particular look to them. And there was it was something to do with the way in which they photographed the space. Uh, it was a smokiness to it, always. Um, it, 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 it just, it was a very particular thing that I kind of fell in love with. And I think it wasn't a case of me at the time saying, wow, you know, uh, they're using anamorphic lenses. I, I didn't know what the hell an anamorphic lens was, but I think subconsciously it planted a seed. And so, you know, then progressively as I've grown up as a, or developed as a, as a filmmaker, uh, that never went away. Um, and then, of course, the other obvious one would be uh, the... Um, Sergio Leone Westerns. But what I'm really talking about there is uh, a ratio as opposed to an actual lens, right? Mm. So, of course, you can use spherical lenses and shoot in a 2-3-5 ratio, and it's, it's, you know, it's a different thing. Um, but the anamorphic, and I'm talking about the glass itself, not the ratio, the glass, has, has that kind of feeling that I had when I first you know, that her first had that epiphany, I guess, mm. watching those those B B horror movies from the through the seventies. You know, it was just like it just was one of those things. Um and then of course it progressed from there, it went everywhere. And I love that you're bringing up the fact that there's two elements to anamorphic. It's the ratio, but also the glass itself. And I I, I like that because I think that kind of gets lost sometimes when people just talk about anamorphic. Completely. Absolutely, one hundred percent. When I talk about anamorphic, I talk. I'm talking about the glass. I'm talking about anamorphic lenses. I'm not talking about a two, three, five. And 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 I agree with you. Often people get don't differentiate between the two, yeah. but there is a huge difference. Um, so yeah, we got a question here from Liam. Oh, another Liam Carrigan. Uh, Apparently, he wants to co-host. I guess is what it is. <laughs> and but I do like this question a lot because he he's talking about. <clears throat> your use of camera movement. He says, I love how minimal most of the camera movement is. Uh, what made you guys decide on using so many long lingering static shots? Um, you know, that, that, that also 
that's to do with a number of things and, and ultimately it's the filmmaking itself, right? So again, it's part of the bigger picture. So um, Alex's cutting style um, is very, um, he, does, he doesn't go for a very heavily cutty style, right? So it's, almost, it's always about um, observing and un- doing it in an unflinching way. Uh, but not pushing it to a sort of self-consciousness as this can sometimes happen um, with other movies. And uh, so, so there's a, I mean, in the case, it's, it's a couple of things. So, so in that sense, you, you, you're allowed to look because of the cutting style, you're really allowed to linger on those shots. You're really allowed to understand the space and the characters and everything that's happening. So that's one thing. Um, the, the other thing is that, obviously, that, like I said before, a lot of those scenes, a lot of those dialogue scenes are very long. They're eight, nine pages long. So we just master it. And we, if we're moving the camera really quickly, it's just a simple, silly thing. You move the camera really quickly, you're moving around the room too quickly, and you're not really <clears throat> getting to the heart of the scene. You're not lis- listening to what that person is saying and yeah. absorbing Yeah, I just think because we just think we like it. It looks good. <laughs> there you go. We like it. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, okay. We got a couple questions about annihilation. Oh, yeah. Um, story lit films on Instagram, uh, is asking a lot of scenes were outdoors. Um, what did you do for lighting? I, again, used big broad sources, uh, that would be, um, combined with whatever was happening naturally. Um, a lot of it was tungsten. And you've got to remember with that movie, uh, the whole thing is set. Ultimately, the story is kind of set in the South somewhere, the Deep South, like, you know, even Florida, perhaps. Uh, I know that that's where the book was set, Florida. Um, we were shooting this in UK. The whole thing was shot there, you know, Windsor. So, uh, but in addition to that, I had the added uh, element of what the shimmer would do to... Um, the daylight, how it would affect the daylight, which again gave us a kind of great carte blanche, if you like, a kind of uh, uh, a green card to play to play a little bit. So uh, as they were walking through forests and things like that, I would end up planting, um, you know, twenty four k tungstens in way off into the trees, straight back at camera um, to create this sense of a low sun and and then allow it to do, combine that with sort of color projectors and allow all of that stuff to bleed into the natural daylight. Um, so there was always kind of a, there was always something that would anchor it into our story by using that tungsten light within that narrative context. All right, let's talk about collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Collaboration in editing has always been a little bit clunky. Um, and it's super important that it's accurate. I mean, you know, you wanna make sure that nothing is missed and passing around XMLs, eh, you know, it's okay. But you want a solution that is seamless and robust. And this is what PostLab is. Um, it's a collaboration tool for Final Cut Pro and Premiere, and it has a few features that really make it perfect. First of all, it gives everybody access. Besides always saving your documents locally, it syncs all the changes with your entire team wherever they are. So you're not zipping up and emailing documents back and forth. It's just not happening anymore. You're also going to make sure that there are no broken files because as anybody knows that have done this before, 
two people working on the same file is a disaster. And it's an accident waiting to happen. And PostLab makes sure that it doesn't happen. Because the second somebody starts working on a library, PostLab locks it from everybody else. So you don't have to worry about it. And also, they've really revolutionized Time Machine, which we all know and love. But with PostLab, their Time Machine, that they're calling Time Machine 2.0, allows you to browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions and find that particular edit within a minute, and it opens exactly how you left it down to the blinking playhead. You are going to want to try this program for sure, and you can. You can get a three-month free at gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. Three months. Think about what you can do in three months. And I guarantee you, once you use this tool for even just three days, let alone three months, you're going to say, how could I have lived without this? This is the collaboration tool we've all been wanting and waiting for, and it's here. You can get it for three months now at gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab, P-O-S-T-L-A-B. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. And one more question, too, about Annihilation, and also Ex Machina a little bit, too. Um, MFka on Twitter, it would be awesome to know how he handles the visual effects shots in Annihilation and Ex Machina compared to the very practical effects in Fallout. And we're going to end our conversation with a little bit about Mission Impossible Fallout. We've got a couple questions from our audience there, too. So um, thank you, MFka. So uh, visual effects shots, um, mm. you know, how are you handling them in, you know, Annihilation, Ex Machina, Devs? versus the practical shots in fallout well you know that 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 starts with a relationship with a great relationship with um, Andrew whitehurst the vfx coordinator for uh all, all of the garden films so um he was very much and again it's something that started with this mac and it's very much embedded into reality and what's happening in in front of the camera and what's in the room yeah uh so he would never shy away from the idea that um we would simply um shoot as much in camera as we possibly could and and then what he was doing which i think is which is testament to how brilliant the vfx you know artist he is is that he can make it work within that context um so there was never very much green screen or blue screen, if any. Uh, there certainly wasn't any on Ex Machina. There was a tiny bit on um, Annihilation, and I don't really remember anything on Devs either. So it wasn't really our world. Um, it, it comes back to a concept, and that concept is how do you embed some, how do you make it feel as real as possible? So I'm sure everyone talks about, but we're not VFXing entire worlds. We're VFXing tiny elements within that world. Uh, and when they when they combine, you know, I would always say to Andrew, joking that some of his best work was like when he puts in things like police tape, like blowing in the wind. I'm like, did yeah. you do that? That's amazing. And it's like, and suddenly it's like, it, it's, it's adding to everything else that we're doing. And that's brilliant, brilliant work. I love um, finding out that there were visual effects and scenes that I had that I didn't know. Yeah. Like, I love yeah. that. Yeah. So, so we always work on that, that principle. And of course, technically you, you, you deal with it on a base, you know, on, on a day by day basis, I guess. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, Andrew's brilliant and just embracing lens choices. He loves it. He, I mean, he came out of film school, so he knows, he understands, gets it. He's a filmmaker himself, photographer mm -hmm. himself. So, 
again, that, that really helps with, uh, with the storytelling. Um, and that relationship is key. It's, very, it's, it's like you, you have to have a strong relationship. And we're going to round out our conversation with your work on Mission Impossible Fallout. We've got two questions here. The first, from Guru Raj on Instagram, wants to know about planning and shooting the stunt work in Fallout. I mean, that must have been just amazing. A totally different type and style of filmmaking is when you're doing stunt work. Um, we had a stunt We had a stunt woman on a couple of years ago just talking about her work, and it's like the the things you need to think about uh, from a cinematography standpoint is like, if you don't do it, you truly don't know that you ever would have to think about these things. So I, I'm curious too. And thank you, Guru Raj, for that question. Talk to us about the way you worked with stunts on Fallout. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question because with Fallout, we were doing something that um, isn't often done and very rarely done uh, in terms of the combination of stunts and uh, if you like, uh, the rest of it, the whole story itself. The first thing we did is that we eliminated the second unit. So we did everything. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, um, so, so essentially what you had was, was the main unit shooting, uh, special effects, uh, VFX, uh, stunts, all of it. Why um, did you, why, why, why get rid of second unit? That came from that came from uh, Chris McQuarrie and Tom. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it's to do with the way Tom works, and Tom's approach is essentially he will do everything, mm -hmm. uh, right down to close up of the hand picking up the mug or whatever it is. Wow, it's Tom, right? And so one of the emphases on uh, on the stunt work was the fact that he's doing it right. So he's doing everything. So we really needed to, from a photographic point of view, we really needed to embed ourselves. And my, my first thing I said to Tom actually was that I wanted to be, um, I wanted to put the audience right there with him. And because uh, I think what they would used to in the past, and what traditionally when you shoot stunts, it's like you, you long lens a lot of stuff, uh, especially car stuff. Um, or you might uh, be handheld uh, with fight stuff. Um, but what I wanted to do was to find an elegant way to put us right next to Tom uh, without ever losing a sense of the environment. Mm. So it was a combination of those two things because we were in these amazing environments. Those movies go all over the world. You want to feel Paris around Tom as he's speeding through on a motorcycle. You want to feel the landscape as he's flying the helicopter. So my whole concept was to get the camera as close as possible. And, you know, that then what that does is it reveals, uh, it looks at something in an unflinching way. And that's a challenge to stunts because a lot of work with stunts does involve um, hiding stuff and uh, putting it, in, but also doing it safely, right? Doing it absolutely 100% safely and creating uh, something that feels authentic, but of course the whole thing's, it's not real. So we, we were kind of combining those two worlds and we were lucky enough to have um, a lead who would do it all. Mm. So it became a very practical uh, approach 
that we took. Um, and I could get cameras as close as I possibly could. And it was great. Mm. Um, and again, like I say, without ever losing that sense of the environment. So I think in one sense, obviously it's territory I'd never walked into before, but I think it was territory that all of us had never walked into before. Um, I was, I wasn't interested in, uh, and neither was Chris or Tom, uh, in going into this, just shooting another movie with stunts in it, um, in the way that stunts are shot. We wanted to do it uh, immersively. And to do that, it helps you have an actor who who is in that world because it's very difficult not to do that or, or to, to do that if you don't have an actor that doesn't do stunts to the extent that Tom does. So then, yes, you have to take more, more of a traditional approach to shooting stunts. But... Um, I think Fallout was an exception to that rule, you know, um, and it made it special. Do you think that it was an exception because you hadn't done, you know, you didn't have a big portfolio of stunt films prior to that. So you were kind of just making it up as you go, making it your style. Or That's are there specific pitfalls that you sort of knew about that you said, I'm definitely not going to, or not even pitfalls, but techniques that you were thinking, I'm definitely not going to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think, in a weird way, some would argue not, but in a weird way, um, me walking into it, you know, <clears throat> from from the approach of, to filmmaking that I had, uh, you know, there's a reason that Chris picked me to shoot the movie and Chris and Tom picked me to shoot the movie. And so that I wasn't, I was going to honor that. I wasn't going to back away from that. Um, and so I stuck to my guns. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there were, you know, there were times when I would be pushing and, and sometimes be told, well, that's not possible. Um, but then we we're shooting Mission Impossible. So anything, <laughs> it, it, it seemed to me anything was possible <laughs> and it did, and it, you know, it worked. So, um, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges doing that. And, and, and I think everybody felt challenged but in a really good way, in a positive way, you know? Um, so, so I was, you know, I was just, I wanted to embrace that challenge. And, and, and like I said, you know, the one thing that I felt was like, I, all I knew is that Tom and Chris wanted to do something completely different to everything that had gone before. And I was going to honor that. And I was, like I said to you, you know, I, I, that's, I, I was there to help, help with that. Um, and, um, and it meant that it was, you know, it's, it's a marathon. You're running a marathon, you're not sprinting. And, uh, it means challenging all departments and, and some, when people get challenged, they either rise to the challenge or, or, you know, it, they don't. And, and, um, for the most part, we all rose to that challenge and it became what it became. I know it was a while ago, obviously, but. Is there a particular scene or sequence that just simply would not have happened if you were more well-versed in stunt filmmaking? Like it just <laughs> something that came, it was there something that came that you're like, you know, the reason that came out the way it did is because I didn't know how to do it any other way. Um, I, I just think the choice of bringing somebody on that has no stunt experience for a film like Mission Impossible is a real testament to your cinematography and to their trust in you. So I'd yeah. love to know, like, can you point to something where 
that was a that was a true real result uh, of the fact that you just hadn't simply hadn't done it before. Oh, that's a that's a tricky one because you know what I think that I think there are a lot of sequences in that movie that that you could apply that uh, concept that theory to. Uh, I think one of the things. Uh, I mean, you know, look, the classic scene, I think the movie, one of the many classic scenes the movie carries is that bathroom fight sequence. Mm. Um, but that that sequence, you know, that really works because it, those three guys were doing it for real, right? Even Henry. And, and, and by the way, you know, a lot said about Tom doing his own stuff. Henry, my God. I mean, he was hanging out of helicopters at 9,000 feet in, in South Island Museum, freezing his ass off, and nobody clapped him on the back. But, you know, that's Henry Cavill, so he's a good sport, and he just did it. And he got involved in those fights as well. So um, we had a lot of fun with that bathroom bathroom uh, scene. And we, it was one of those things we kept going back to. That set remained standing. We were supposed to, I think we had like five days to shoot it, and we ended up, we shot for two and a half weeks. Uh, and that was over a period of a month because we just kept going back in. We were just like, we should try this, we should try this. You know, you know and, and I think with my approach, it was very much like, um, again, the no, light, the no lights on set approach, the uh, creating a 360-degree environment approach. And that that I worked closely with Peter on that set and and sort of pushed a bit to get uh, a set that could light itself uh, in a way that was um, un, and again unflinching. So you see everything because originally it was supposed to be kind of pools of light and all that kind of stuff. I was like, no, no, no. Let's make this let's make this contrast with where they've just been, which was a you know a crazy kind of massive warehouse rave uh, where it's you know, you've got strobing lights, you've got lasers everywhere, it's quite dark, into this kind of almost 2001-esque uh, environment that uh, where they're supposed to be doing something, you know, with subterfuge, if you like, uh, but there's nowhere to hide there because the thing's white and it's it's lit, blanket lit from above. And so you have this beautiful, suddenly you have this beautiful environment in which this kind of chaotic fight unfolds. And there's nowhere to hide, and and everything is in plain sight. And I loved that, uh, and that was something I kind of pushed quite hard for. And so I think, you know, and there were there were other examples, but I think maybe that's an example. But. And I love it too. I mean, the, I, it's such an iconic scene, and it's there's so much chaos in this otherwise very plain and simple room, and uh, it's almost like a stage play where it, yeah. it's just the the camera really gets out of the way, everything gets out of the way, and you're just like here's your, here's your rink, you know, here, here's your ring fight, go. <laughs> like it, it really does provide like a, the perfect canvas for a scene like that. I, I thought it was a great choice. I think, I think the other thing just to, just to finish off on that is, is, uh, and again, it comes back to this concept of proximity and wanting to get close to Tom doing stuff. Right. And this is, this is where it's very different to doing a regular kind of stunt driven mo movie uh, and where my sort of inexperience came, came, the sort of fearlessness and the maybe foolishness probably uh, it sort of came into its own where I'm just like, no, let's, you know, I, I'm in the, cause I, I operate a camera as well. So I kind of wanted to be part of the mess, if you like, and the excitement of it all. So I'm in a, I'm in a, uh, um, 
a pursuit vehicle in on the streets of Paris and and I'm pushing the driver to get and he's amazing Mike Jeskin brilliant like top world-class driver uh to get that camera as close to Tom as possible safely of course I might add safely uh but it enabled us to really you know do things that you wouldn't normally do because you, you he's on that bike right and there's no tow rig there's no nothing he's on that bike and so we can get the camera right up to him um and you can just feel the kind of shiver go down your spine when you're doing it because you're like oh my god this is happening for real there's no green screen there's no one with a fan in his hair it's none of that stuff it's like we're we've closed this entire street down and we're speeding along it and he's avoiding cars and he's driving his bike and here we are shooting it for real. Wow. That, that stuff is, um, that stuff is stuff you don't forget. Uh, uh, and everybody's just kind of like this the whole time, you know, it's like the insurance on that dude must be, uh, <laughs> I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine insurance is on my mind right now because everything's being redone because of COVID. And just hearing you say this, I'm like, I can't believe this happened. How did this movie get made? <laughs> it's crazy. And one last question I don't want to forget about Jeff Fagan wants to know, how did you monitor the skydiving shot? That's a very specific question. Um, Talk to us about that. I mean, I, I, I'm curious just about the whole way you produce the skydiving shots, but the monitoring I think is certainly important to know how you did it. Well, I mean, in many respects, when it, when it actually came to the jump itself, you've got to remember that, you know, that was, that was a, the end result of, of a period of three or four months of fine-tuning the whole idea and the concept. So, so in other words, when it came, when it finally came to shooting it, um, we, you know, we had like, I think it worked 14, 14 attempts uh, at the actual jump from, from the plane itself. Um, and you've got, it's, it's, it's choreography that you trust at that point mm. is the best way I can describe. Um, and the, and the, the only reason it's got to that point is the amount of preparation that we did to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's right down to the, the, the actual choreography. It's down to how do we get a plane? Uh, sorry. How do we get a camera to shoot half shoot a scene inside a plane and then exit the plane and then continue to shoot the scene at whatever it was, 13,000 feet, uh, in a way that doesn't feel like it's a skydiving movie, in a way that it feels like exactly the principle that I've been talking about all along is that sense of getting, you know, getting the audience involved in the action. So, for example, when when focus dips slightly, uh, it's a genuine, a genuine focus dip. It's not, it's a mistake, but that mistake adds to the the authenticity, if you like, uh, for example, if it had been you know Marvel, it would have been almost too perfect, uh, and then your believability goes out the window. And, and so, with this, Tom was very, very uh, upfront about his intention from the very beginning. He's like, I don't want a skydiving movie. I want I want this to feel desperate and real and crazy and um and and you know immersive and that's what we have to do so and you know i could talk for a long time about how we got to that point technically and 
uh, creatively, uh, but I'm pretty sure we won't have the time to do that. We won't have a long time, <laughs> but if you want to spend a couple minutes, it it would be kind of cool. I mean, it is. Well, I mean, look, the first, the, 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 we broke it into stages, right? So the first thing we did is we marked out uh, on the stage the the dimensions of, of the C-17 itself, right? So, that, so what you're looking at creatively is the back end of a scene uh, and a single shot that has to exit the plane. And that's something that nobody had really done that didn't feel like a skydiving shot. Yeah. Uh, uh, we had to do it with the, with technology that I was comfortable with that would uh, serve the quality of what we'd shot already. So that involved bigger cameras, anamorphic lenses. Secondly, or in this case, spherical lenses. In, sorry, in this case, it was uh, we were we were going IMAX on it. And then you you know we did a lot of work on um, wind tunnels, and of course, it being Mission Impossible, we had to have the biggest wind tunnel in the world uh, on the back lot of uh, at Leaveston, uh, which had four jet engines pumped into it, which was insane. Uh, but a lot of the work was done there to choreograph the sequence. At first, we thought we were going to shoot the sequence there. Um, and I had to then, one of my challenges was, because there's originally a script that the, the skydiving jump was at night. And I just said, look, guys, you're not going to, you literally are not going to see anything. At 13,000 feet, you're going to see the, the lights around his helmets and it's just going to, it's not going to work. What you want to do is you want to feel the curvature of the earth. You want to feel that height that you get, you know, when you're in a jet plane and you look out the window and the sun is long, long gone, but you still feel uh, this kind of weird twilight. So I said, why don't, we, why don't we say the jump happens at that point? So by the time they reach Paris and they've gone through the storm clouds, uh, it is night. So we can sell that idea in reality, which is what, what we did in the end. Yeah. Uh, so you get a lot more out of it, right? Um, and when we were working with the um, wind tunnels and the original idea that we were going to shoot the whole sequence on a wind tunnel, uh, with the exception of the first part, I had to find a way of lighting, having a change of lighting changes that would take you from kind of weird, weird 13,000 feet twilight into storm cloud, into lights coming up from Paris below. Um, and I can tell you that was difficult, but, you know, we figured it out in the end. And by the time we got to the point of figuring that out, both Henry and Tom, specifically Tom, felt the wind tunnel just wasn't working for them. They wanted to do it for real and uh <laughs> at which point then you know i've already i've already looked at these ideas like do we need a, do we need a cameraman who can train up as a skydiver because i'm not jumping out of a plane i can tell you that do we need uh a skydiver that we train as a cameraman you know and which is eventually where we where we ended up and you know this first part it needs to feel like a steady cam and uh, we're not obviously jumping out with a steady cam. That's ridiculous. And is it going to be a helmet cam? If so, he needs to be crouched at a certain height. Are we going to put him on wheels somehow? Around? All of these questions had to be researched and developed and then answered and then given a safety stamp to be able to do it 13, 14, 15,000 feet. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a process. So a where, where did it end up? You had a... a an actual diver that you trained diver. as a camera operator. Correct. 
and he he ended up you know we had a red camera broken down onto his on, on a helmet cam we had our uh primo 70 imax lenses um and we had a focus pulling handoff if you like mid-air handoff from plane to ground um and Hold, what do you mean mid mid-air focus pulling handoff so what you were you controlling it remotely in some way focus was controlled remotely okay yeah. so so, but from the plane itself, and then there was a handoff somewhere in midair to to the ground, just by changing the signal, I guess, from Correct. which unit is attached to it. Wow, my yeah. God! I know that is it's just nuts. that's crazy. <laughs> the whole thing was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was insane. But how many know, times did you it, do it? it? Looks great. Fourteen times. Oh, wow. Actually, over a period, yeah, it was a period of three weeks, 14 jumps, I believe. Um, and it was probably the last few couple of jumps that really, when it really worked. Unbelievable. Well, there must have been a point when you're 12 jumps in, you know, 10 jumps in, and you're like, this just isn't working. Are we going to keep going until it does? Or Well, that's, that's exactly, that was our approach throughout the whole movie. And sometimes you're like, there's no way this is going to work, but uh, that's where, like, you know, the skill of someone like Tom comes in. He's just constantly like, no, we keep going. We keep going. And he's like, I'm going to, I don't care. I'm going to stay because the jumps, the first part of the jump was in, out in Abu Dhabi. And he's like, we're staying here until we, we've got it. We're not leaving until we've got it. And everyone's like, maybe we're going to be here for four or five weeks or <laughs> a month or three months. Who knows? Uh, but that was always the case with every, every scene we approached. It was like, particularly when it came to the stunts, that we would never walk away from it until we all felt like we really got it. Wow. Well, Rob Hardy, BSC, your work is just stunning. And I'm so glad that you keep coming back on Go Creative Show to share your experiences because uh, I'm just such a huge fan of your work. And um, Devs is fantastic. It's on Hulu right now. Um, you guys should certainly be checking it out if you haven't already. And of course, all your other great work there as well. And we'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes. But Rob, thank you so much for coming back on Go Creative Show. Thanks for asking me, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Real pleasure. All right, I want to thank Rob Hardy, BSC, for coming back on the show and sharing his experiences on, wow, I mean, talk about a, a diverse range of films. Um, Ex Machina, Mission Impossible, the series Devs. I mean, his work is so good. And uh, I was so glad that he came on the show to talk about it. I'm also glad that we've got two fantastic people behind the scenes making this show happen. One of them is our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, Matt Russell, who's been there since the beginning with me, uh, mixing this audio right now. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. I don't know how he does it sometimes, but we thank him for doing it. You can find him at Go Create. Go Creative Show. What am I saying? You can find him at Gainstructure.com. Gainstructure.com. And of course, on Twitter, at Gainstructure. So follow us all over the place at Go Creative Show, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And of course, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and keep your ears and eyes open. Follow me on Instagram, Ben Consoli, because I will be revealing the system that we have created that you can all use yourself. It's nothing special, I'm not selling anything. It's just all the stuff that you can have access to right now to do true remote DSLR filmmaking. It's gonna blow your mind. 
and of course, OpenReel. 10% off of OpenReel by going to openreel.com, scheduling a demo and letting them know you heard it from me. And of course, our sponsors, MZ Education for Creatives and PostLab Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Without those people, the show wouldn't exist. So please support those that support us. And we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.